Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with co-host Devin Dito. We are continuing our HBCU Awareness Series and bringing you Xavier University of Louisiana and their president, Dr. Reynolds Barrett. So sit back and listen well as we talk to you about the state of HBCUs. Just to give you a little bit of information about Dr. Barrett, he's actually the sixth president and the second lay leader of Xavier University of Louisiana, which is the only Catholic HBCU in the nation. So that's a really, really interesting point there. Before being president, Dr. Barrett served as provost at Savannah State University and at Wilkes University. As chief academic officer at Savannah, he led the university initiatives to build enrollment, enhance the quality and diversity of academic programs, develop the faculty, promote interdisciplinary efforts, especially between the humanities and sciences, and to create cooperative relationships with neighboring institutions and with other partners at the K-12 and higher education levels. Dr. Vare is a Haitian native who received his undergraduate degree uh, cum laude in biochemistry from Columbia University and a PhD in biochemistry from MIT in the laboratory of the late Harbogand Koran. Beyond his degrees, he has a postdoctoral experience as a fellow at the Howard Hughes Institute for Immunology at Yale and the Center for Cancer Research at MIT, where he completed research regarding immunology. He has served on many professional organizations and advisory bodies, including those of the National Institutes of Health, the Board of the Pennsylvania Humanity Council, and the Georgia Coastal Indicators Coalition. He has received awards and fellowships for teaching and scholarship. So viewers, you know, we always like to say this, but we've got great, great individuals at the helm of our uh, HBCUs. So again, we're bringing you another, another great leader. And we're so pleased to have you join us today, Dr. Barrett. Good to be with you and to join the conversation. Yeah, for sure. It's It's been a great conversation so far as we've been doing this, uh, because the, the thing that we've realized is that HBCUs do not get the appreciation they deserve. So that's why we wanted to do this. You know, March is HBCU Awareness Month. So we really wanted to put on something that talks about the value of HBCUs, which is what the first segment is about. It's about the history and the value of HBCUs. And and one of the things that we've gathered throughout this series is that HBCUs do more than just educating. Uh, HBCUs are about giving back. Uh, giving back to their students, giving back to the communities, uh, making sure that they can, you know, leave a legacy behind. Even with your institution, Mother Catherine was clear in laying out the purpose of Xavier University. She wanted to produce leaders for society, for government, for the church, with a strong emphasis on giving back, with the sense of stewardship or sharing that they freely receive. And one of the things that we wanted to kind of, you know, get in with the first question, um, we've been talking about how this mantra of, you know, giving back as you freely receive isn't something that we see within the Black community as a whole. So our first question, um, how are you getting your students and faculty and staff at Xavier to live up to that mission? And what can we do to really expand that throughout our Black neighborhoods? I think one of the things that we have as um a core sense of what Xavier is, which has been here before me, we, we have lived this since our founding in the early 1900s, is the expectation of service. When we have a mission statement, which eventually has been modified slightly, but never changed, says we are here to contribute to a more just and humane society. And that notion of service, if I put it this way, is that our students, our graduates understand that 
no matter what they've learned here, whether it's chemistry, it's history, it's art, it's uh, political science, that none of that will have any meaning until they put it to the service of somebody else. That's really when you come to use it to build community, to serve other people as a physician, as a teacher, as a lawyer, whatever you do. It means that that notion of service is really built in. And that notion is that basically giving and living for someone else is important to what we do. That's what community is, that none of us walks alone and none of what we do has any meaning by itself for us alone. And that notion uh, reminds our, our alumni that giving back, even if they're giving back elsewhere, is, is important. That, that, that's important that they are giving and always building, and that's what they are called to be. Uh, and I think that's, that's also very inherent in the cultures of, of ancestors. There are many words, there are many expressions, for example, in the Caribbean when they speak of kombit or other efforts which essentially build the, the building, the coming together to do something, to do something great. That expectation of doing, of community was inherently there. And it almost counters another American tension. Americans are known for their individualism. And the individualism is that, and sometimes taken to an extreme pole. And the other extreme pole is community, communitarian values, right? And that's in the communitarian values is never lost at our institutions. And I have to say that in this COVID pandemic, right? It's communitarian values that saved us, not individualism. Very true. <laughs> very, very true. And one thing we've noticed too, speaking with, you know, presidents from, from all around the, the, the country is that each HBCU is kind of doing its part um, in the community, really during this pandemic to try to help out um, and, and try to, you know, kind of blunt the blow of this this pandemic when it comes to our community. Uh, we, you know, we, we talked to Howard, they're, they're giving vaccines. I think even FAMU is doing that. So you definitely do see each university kind of trying to do its own thing in the community. And, and so our, our question is more so about you a little bit and, and your journey. You know, we, we know you went to Columbia and, and MIT. And so we just wanted to ask you, um, you know, what was your perception, you know, of, of HBCUs and, and how, you know, just kind of walk us through your higher education journey and your perception of those HBCUs and how, what did you think of their value? Well, uh, I first to begin with, I, I, grew up in, I grew up in Brooklyn. And the high school where I attended, the high school that I attended, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the last class of that high school. The building, where, where, uh, the building of that high school became Ed Revers College. Not, not, historically, not historically black college, but also recent. So I've also known Ed Revers College for my days as I was leaving my high school and then I came back to the neighborhood. But also, more tellingly is that even at, when I was at MIT, uh, John Turner, who was an associate dean, myself, Joe Francisco was a professor at, at Penn, he and I, Joe my, and I were, grad, were, were, post, were graduate students in post. I just finishing. And we began the program, basically, of recruiting students from HBCUs to a summer program. And many of those students then went on to become graduate students. Some of them are professors elsewhere. Some of them are, have even gray hair at this point. Uh, but the sense that these brilliant young men and women were coming from HBCUs was not strange to us, that even some of, our, some of our, my professors themselves had, had studied at HBCUs. John Turner himself is, is a Fisk graduate and he was associate uh, uh, of the graduate school. So we had, we had examples of people from HBCUs who had done remarkable things. So when I, and, and my coming to Xavier was not my first venture in HBCU because I, I, I was at Savannah State. But before that, as a professor of chemistry, I was a professor at, at Clark Atlanta. So where we could see what could happen in HBCUs with great students. Uh, so it was not, to me, it was not um, a, a recent revelation of what the HBCUs were doing. But also you saw the examples of who came, who came out of the HBCUs and what, and what they were doing, and they were, they were throughout the country. So there was never a question in my mind that the education and the talent in those HBCUs 
wasn't in, it wasn't as rich as what I would see, for example, in many of the institutions in, in the Northeast where there are very few HBCUs. No, that's good. Yeah, that's what we've been seeing from a lot of our leaders is that, you know, even from people who may not have gone to an HBCU institution, they understand the value. They have colleagues, they have family members who've, done, who've been participated in that. And they've been able to see that HBCUs are putting on some top programs, you know, whether it be in engineering, uh, medicine, different things of that nature. We know that even Xavier is putting on a lot of the top programs in a lot of these fields. So yeah, that's why, you know, Dr. Ver, we really like to start this first segment or rather the conversation talking about the history and the value of HBCUs uh, because they have a special place in our society, special place in black communities, uh, and they deserve, you know, to be recognized. So with that being said, uh, we're going to take our first break viewers and when we come back uh, we're going to get into our second segment which has been talking about the societal perception of hbcus so stick with us we'll be right back thank you for listening to the black agenda podcast we appreciate your support and we ask that you like share and follow us on social media you can find us on facebook ig and twitter at black agenda pod that's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, viewers, let's get back into this. Uh, we're in our second segment. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. Verrett, who's the sixth president of Xavier University of Louisiana, a great institution, only Catholic HBCU in our nation. Um, Dr. Verrett, we've been talking a lot about societal perception in our second segment within our HBCU series. And, and, and I wanted to start off by just giving a little bit of you know, praise to your institution, because there was a couple of different things I saw on the website. Uh, one was there was an announcement uh, by uh, TikTok that you're going to be getting a $1 million donation from them in recognition for serving underrepresented students with programs focused on public health and professions. Uh, another thing is NBC Universal News Group is launching a new program, a journalism training program with you all that's going to be a really a world-class organization program for you that's going to show that you know people that are like NBC see value in HBCUs and Xavier not to mention looking at rankings. I mean, you're number third on the U.S. News Best College Guide 2021 when it comes to HBCUs. So clearly, Xavier is, you know, you're all excelling, y'all are doing some great things. But from talking with all of our HBCU leaders, we know that y'all are doing these great things, even with challenges that are happening behind the scenes. One of those big challenges is that y'all are fighting against a societal perception that wants to keep minority groups as the inferior groups, wants to keep them down. Because when you look at that, you know, when you look at that fact like that, HBCUs are often top of the list, but only under certain categories, like looking at HBCUs or looking at regional schools in the South. So our question to you, Dr. Verrett, we, we, and, and, you know, as a disclaimer, we know rankings are not important, but for a lot of students and a lot of parents, they are. So how do we fix this narrative or maybe reevaluate the metrics that go into these rankings lists so that our nation's HBCUs can receive the appreciation and the acceptance that they deserve? Well, I'll begin with one uh, important, one, one data point. Xavier Sass says more African-Americans become physicians than any school in the country. We've not been doing it for the last few years. We've been doing this for many decades because we're very intentional about that. I would put, I would put this, whether any student who comes here, whether he is whether that student is black, white, or of any other ethnicity, and comes to Xavier, the desire of going to medical school, or goes to another one of those very good 
peer schools of ours, and I, and I can mention a few in Pennsylvania and in Massachusetts as well, right? Coming to Xavier or coming to one of those schools and with the desire of coming to medical school, there's no doubt that the probability of you reaching that dream is much greater than Xavier. We've been doing it very well. In fact, many other institutions come to look to see exactly why and how we're doing it, especially since we do not presume to be a selective institution. We bring in students, and, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm very intentional, this is my choice of words. I said, we bring in young people who may not have received the education they deserved. We're not blaming the student. Remember, no child chooses his own school, at least not yet. Um, and, 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 and we do these marvelous things with it because of, our, because of a faculty that has, that's very intentional and that we, we, and we and reproduces itself. People leave it. We replace with faculty of those, quali- of those qualities still. That's, that's true. And Xavier, the fact that we send these students to, to become doctors, uh, PhDs in, in the physical and life sciences, uh, and the NSF uh, uh, points that out, is because of not something that we do that's uniquely just for African-American students. Because, we, because at the education is at the highest quality. In fact, one, one thing that students coming to Xavier face is that, as I say, they may, not have, they may have chicks in their armor because you, will come, you may come with an education that is not perfect but you will discover the chinks in your arm in that first year. And the one thing these alumni say, they know the faculty has their back. So that the faculty says, here's what you don't know. And now let's fix, let's, here's how we're going to work to fix it with you. And the, and the students know this. We're very intentional about that. And, we, and our students can stand and compete with anyone around the country, around the world. It's happened and we've done it and, 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 and we know how to do it well. Part of it is believing that there is talent in these students. And I'll come back to your question, that the assumption that there was less intellectual capacity, that students, that African black, the descendants of slaves could not, should not be educated at the higher levels, that they should be educated for only menial tasks, was because it was important for, for the society to say, we need these people in their place in, 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 order, in order to keep a certain caste structure based on race. Uh, that was also the justification, for example, why you would enslave someone and, and expropriate his or her labor, children, body, <laughs> uh, and to rationalize that, and as I, as I say, there's something that someone always says, even military, even, even the military knows that when someone does great violence, even the, in a righteous cause, right, you need to process that so that you can sleep and not become a monster. The rationalization structure was, able, was to allow these people who were inflicting this violence in order to actually go to sleep and actually hold their children after having flogged a woman and taken the skin off her back. So that structure of minimizing things black also extended to institutions of, edu- of educational institutions. So that you'd have schools like that little, that, 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 that school, which was not very big at the time in, in, in Atlanta, Morehouse or Spelman or Xavier. You have these, these remarkable young women and men who are graduating from there, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow people assume that they were getting less than until they sat in the bench next to you in medical school, law school, whatever. And say, oh, or Howard. Uh, you have, so you have this remark, but that is always, there's always a surprise. My God, you went, you went to this HBCU? No, they were, you should see the others who were next to me. They were even brighter than I was. <laughs> but that reluctance to, to, to see this reality when the reality faces you is, uh, is, 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 is uh, what I call the American mind. The American mind is a, uh, if you think about it, you think that we all swim in this water and we drink the, all the same Kool-Aid and we get infected by it. In fact, it, the American mind is that when you wake up and something happens, even when you're seven or eight years old, and the first question you said was, 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 was he black or was he white? 
That's an automatic question. Mm-hmm. It's a question that we ask ourselves. For example, if I hear a voice of someone on the phone and the voice is ambiguous, it could be a woman or a man in between. My brain wants to know if it's a woman or a man because it's something I was coded from since I was a little child, a little baby. Even if the person is just telling me, your car's about to be towed, the sex that really doesn't matter, right? <laughs> My brain wants to know. The yeah. same way that in the United States, the way, we, the way we create a society that actually washes people's minds, right? That everyone wants to know. Is it black or white? That's <laughs> an automatic question. Well, and, and, and as Americans, because we are, we are the, the empire, we are the, the great power of the world, right? We assume everyone thinks the way we do. Until you get to maybe Saudi Arabia, where the question would be, is he Sunni or Shiite? But not black or white. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody thinks what you do. And you realize that even an immigrant who comes here, even as an adult, after several years in the United States, begins to think like an American. But the assumption that we, that the fact that people come to think that way is basically understand that basically we can actually liberate ourselves from that kind of thinking. Exactly. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an obligatory fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but we're swimming in this water and drinking the Kool-Aid and the Kool-Aid is affecting everyone, right? And I even use the fact that even black folk get affected by it as well because there's a, there's a very f- a simple study which was done of, of uh, the, the, the pain relief by physicians of patients with, diff- with certain great levels of pain. And they noticed in that large study, which was very, what, tens of thousands of patients, right? That, so it was a large study. They could see that black patients their pain was addressed less aggressively than white patients, which may have protected black folks from the opium uh, crisis. You think about it. But what they did, when you, when you looked at that data and pulled out the African-American physicians in that set, right, they too undertreated the, 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 the pain of black folks because That's there are certain assumptions about black folks that we drink the Kool-Aid. Too many times, <laughs> too often. It's, like, it's more like we're swimming in the ocean. Everyone's everyone's in that water, and 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 you don't notice the water anymore because this, the water is it, 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 it is like the air around us. Um, and, and, and that notion, that instant attitude, minimizing things that were built by the descendants of slaves, right, doesn't benefit us because these institutions are a rich repository, not just of the legacy of slaves, of the descendants of slaves, right, but there's a reservoir of talent that's so rich here. And you should, when you come on my campus and, and you see, I call them these freakily bright young women and men walking around. Oh, they've always been there. Right. And, and it's so interesting hearing you explain the thought process of how we got to where HBCUs, and like you say, anything Black is perceived as being less than or you know, not up to standard or something um, to that effect. Although the data doesn't, you know, represent that um, people will believe it no matter what. It's almost perception is reality for a lot of people, um, even though the facts don't back that up. But one of the things we always ask each president is just kind of, you know, what their university is doing to counteract these narratives out there. Uh, we know that we've, we've talked to some schools like Fisk University, who's, who's made it a point. They are laser focused on making sure that their story is told um, you know, by them. And so they're going out and making sure they're putting stories in newspapers and magazines. They're getting in front of kids in high schools to make sure the story is told correctly, because we've know it typically in the media, the national media, they, they'll rather tell the negative story about an HBCU than tell the story of how many doctors and lawyers and, and physicians they're producing every year. Um, they'll rather tell the negative story. And so we just want to ask, you know, what is, you know, I guess, Xavier, you know, what are, what are your goals and what are you doing to make sure that the story 
of Xavier University of Louisiana is told correctly and trying to counteract that narrative that, you know, HBCUs are less than? Well, I think we are we are very intentional in, in, in telling this, in telling our story, the story of our graduates, and what happens at Xavier. Uh, and Reggie, for example, is one is one is one of the individuals in our communications program, which makes sure that our story is told, that we are uh, 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 owning our story. Because the assumption that you're, you're quite right, the assumption is that others will tell our story correctly, uh, can fail us often enough. The other role that that we do, I think, we see ourselves as an education of, as an institution of higher learning. We are in the business of, tell, of, of truth-telling because we are, to use a very New Orleans metaphor of the neutral ground, we are, we are a, a, a center for, to give the objective truth and, the, and, 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 and explain the truth to everyone. So even our, our forums that we have, we have forums and, 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 different, and different seminars otherwise, we make them available to the public. For example, our Center for Equity, Justice, and Human Spirit is, is what I call our outward-facing mission. There's an inward mission of educating our young people. There's an outward mission where basically we are, we, we are making sure that the research and scholarship and the encounters that we bring guests on down campus to be able to analyze and reflect the story and to be involved in some of the debates that are truly contentious points. As I said, the neutral ground at Xavier is where, where those two communities that didn't like each other, right, would come on the neutral ground sometimes for, for carnival, even, even, even for picnic or, 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 for, or for a ball game. So, so this is where actually we have encounters with people who even do not agree with each other, and that's that 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 modeling uh, discussions, but also discussions based on facts, on truth, not on make believe, is important. So that truth telling, we feel that it is our mission. Our mission is not just to our students; we have an external mission to the world. Right. And, and that's what, you know, that's why we did this series. You know, we wanted to give you all, you know, the ability to tell the story through your, your voice and, and with facts to back it up that way. Um, you know, you can't really dispute it. Once people, once you, you know, ask people like, why aren't, why do you think HBCUs aren't up to snuff? They really don't have a great answer. They say, well, I think this, I think that. And then you say, well, the numbers don't back that up. So they can't really, you know, retort and say anything. So that's why we need more, you know, universities to be laser focused like Xavier and others, you know, to tell that story and be intentional um, about can, what you're saying. I can give you an example of how remarkable the people who are here, faculty, staff, uh, even my, in my cabinet. Think about the pandemic. January of last year, right? Mm-hmm. People were still not guessing what, whether this thing was real or not, right? On January, on the third week of January, we began saying we need to do a, a, a scenario planning session because what happened in Vietnam, the fact that it showed up in Vietnam was saying that something may come here. This is not where the government declared a pandemic. On 23rd of January, we had planning sessions on how we should plan for this to happen, uh, to work to work our way through, which is why we've been able to navigate this by thinking thoughtfully. Remember, January, this is, the rest of the country is still twiddling its thumb. We begin our planning work end of, before the end of January. This is the quality of people that we have at Xavier. That, and, 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 and so... People would assume, oh, it has to be at Harvard at one of the Ivy Leagues or or that very nice school in Morningside Heights, right? It was happening at Xavier. The fact that we're able to put behavioral behavioral behaviors and and teach our people about the right behaviors was the reason why we were able to keep our positivity rates somewhere around 1.5%, no higher. We had no drugs at the time. There was no magic. That's impressive. I mean, and that just goes to show you, like HBCUs are essentially on a cutting edge. Yeah, you, you saw it coming. You responded um, appropriately and were able to keep your cases low. That way um, you could keep 
you know, the, the outbreak under control, whereas the rest of the country was going through um, a horrible outbreak. And so I just go to show you that HBCUs are, are aware uh, and they're very, very smart people who come from these schools. So obviously what you see right there with Dr. Ver explaining their response to the coronavirus, um, just goes to show you just how on it, on their game they really are um, down at Xavier, but in, at other HBCUs. So, and, and I'd say it's true for, for what I'm in the HBCU community, the, Handling of the pandemic in most instances was quite was exemplary. Uh, mm. People actually took the steps they, they needed to and uh, did what they needed to do. And there was not a there was there was not no none of the wishful thinking that many other institutions in this in this in this country, not just academic institutions, uh, went through. That's very true. That's very true. So that's going to do it for our second segment. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about funding and also um, diversity in in HBCU. So uh, stick with us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, viewers. So welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Reynold Verrett, who is the sixth president of Xavier University of Louisiana. And so we've talked about, you know, some of the perception of HBCUs. We talked a little about but a little bit about the history and the value of HBCUs, but now we want to kind of shift to um, looking at funding and diversity. And, and first, we want to talk a little bit about funding because we know um, for a lot of HBCUs, fundraising is the name of the game. Um, and so you have to be able to fundraise appropriately. And we know uh, whether you're public or private, there are, are struggles and challenges that come with having consistent funding. And so uh, we know Xavier has a, a, a fairly large endowment of, you know, almost, I think it's here, $178 million. And so we've talked to other HBCUs who've been able to get, you know, some of their largest donations now in the wake of the social justice protests from last year. And even, you know, there's been money from Congress to help with the CARES Act. But um, our, our question, you know, Dr. Verde, is just, we know that HBCUs are kind of have always been in this catch-up mode. You know, Dr. Robinson at FAMU said they're really in a catch-up mode. Yes, the money they're getting now is nice, but they still need to continue support to be able to modernize campuses and keep up. And so we just wanted to, you know, get your take as far as, um, you know, you know, what is Xavier doing, you know, to try to adjust to the pandemic, but also keep their fundraising numbers, you know, steady? And what are you kind of looking towards as far as new ways to try to get donors or alumni to, to give back to the school? Well we, well, we know that the wealth uh, differential between African-American families and the average white family in this country is, uh, it depends on how one calculates, anywhere from six to 10 to one. Uh, it's a large wealth differential. So, and generally the, the, the capacity of most African-American families or, or individuals is, is, is much lower. And that, that has, that impacts the fundraising, the, 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 don- the fundraising and donation capacity of the communities that we normally draw from. But we also know that there are many individuals, one not necessarily African Americans, who can become who do become friends of our institutions because they are, because they see what the remarkable work that we're doing here. Part of that comes back to some of the work that you, you talked about earlier about the reputation work that we have to do because um, we all we we can be lulled by an assumption that uh, they must know about us. <laughs> 
but really they is just people close to us. Even, mm-hmm. even if, if the graduate schools, the medical schools that draw our students, they know about us, but the larger community, the larger population doesn't know about us. So we have to be very intentional to tell our story. And in that intentionality, what it does do, it does bring us to the attention of people who actually do want to do transformative work. And one of the things that they realize is that institutions like ourselves, uh, that a contribution here can not only be transformative, but has an incredible return on investment that they would not do for a similar contribution at another institution. So uh, part of the moment that we've had been, that we are in because of the pandemic and also social justice question America has been asking the last, is that some people are, are noticing us. But I think that's what we have to do is, is, is sustain that and sustain that by real accomplishments and also real conversation with, 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 the, with, with donors who have capacity, both in both commercial and also both corporate and, and individuals as well. That's important. The other piece is also just look at the diversity of, 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 of donations we need, for example. The fact that we are educating students in many uh, STEM fields, the ability to draw grants to support uh, the research which becomes the venue where students actually practice being STEM or being scientists or engineers or whatever. The same with our musicians practice by playing music and doing like that. Playing in the laboratory is the equivalent. Uh, That funding, we have to be the capacity to actually be competitive in agencies like NIH, NSF, uh, NASA, for the the funding that creates laboratories where students can come and become junior colleagues and apprentices. That's important. Uh, so diversifying our, 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 our fundraising is very important and, and being able to actually make sure our message reaches the ears of people who actually do, do want America to move forward as one country and, and draw on the talent of all the people that it has. Uh, that's important. The challenge, I think, is real because I remember our students are, for example, uh, the majority of our students in all HBCUs uh, that I'm aware of, the majority of students are Pell eligible. Xavier in the mid-60s right now. Which means that they are in the lowest, they are in the lowest, lowest socioeconomic groups. Uh, uh, their families are in the sort of lowest socioeconomic groups in this country. That means they have great, great challenges, and therefore, what we need is not just merit-based scholarships. We also need need-based funding to fill the gap, because the gap that may be minimal to a well-heeled family, let's say a few thousand dollars to a family that has that is earning maybe a hundred, hundred plus, right? Uh, the daughter or son will go to college. But for a family that, that is running in the 20s, that may be a question of whether, whether, whether that bright daughter or son ever makes it to college. So we, have, we need the resource to, to, to meet that need and, and, and meet that gap. Because one of the things that we do know, and I've been uh, chair of departments, I've been provost at another HBC, and I'm president at Xavier. One of the things that we do know at many of my, these institutions that I've been at, that one of the more important causes of attrition, students leaving, is not because students are not progressing academically. It's financial. Financial, not just because I can't pay the tuition, right? But minor calamities in the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That lost his job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't help. Those things that we need to be able to fill that gap because what you have is this bright young woman or man, right? Want to get them to that finish line where they can, they can really uh, play a role in transforming, in transforming that, that family and the neighborhood and, and, and the larger community. So though that, those funds to really help to make us affordable it, it, it will be the big challenge that we have to meet for the next decade or so. You know, that's an interesting perspective, especially when you think about uh, the fact of what you were talking about, 
the, the pool of money is coming from minority groups when you talk about HBCUs who are, you know, already behind a wealth gap, you know, compared to, you know, white Americans and things like that. So that's a really, really great perspective and how uh, HBCUs really have to diversify uh, their funding portfolio, um, but also diversify maybe their enrollment, because we know that, like you said, a lot of HBCUs generally going to be 60 above with African-Americans, but we've been seeing pushes for them to diversify their enrollments. Um, one of the other things that I've been thinking about is maybe there's time to almost diversify or maybe add a, a, a new addition to the mission. And, and you all at Xavier are already doing that because we see an interesting partnership uh, between Xavier and the New Orleans Public Schools, where you've put together a partnership and a program that's resulted in more than 250 new teachers for New Orleans schools. And this initiative was designed to recruit, prepare, and develop uh, teachers who are going to be cultural, uh, culturally competent teachers from diverse backgrounds, which is something that's so uh, valuable and something that we need throughout the entire country. So, Dr. Barry, our question here, um, you know, first off, you know, you can just tell us a little bit about the efficacy of that partnership with New Orleans Public Schools. And more importantly, how do we get this to be more of a national push to, you know, maybe get other HBCUs in on this to develop better culturally competent educators on a national uh, basis? Well, the, the vast majority of HBCUs are in the Southeast, with the exception of what before Central Central State or even our uh, Cheney and um, Lincoln. The majority are, are, are in what I would call the former Confederacy. Also in, in part of the country with the large African-American populations. All HBCUs, we are, so we're in the middle of, of, of that density of, of, of the African diaspora to, 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 to the Americas. We have also partnerships with our local school systems, our local school districts. Every HBCU needs to have, needs to be, needs to have a partnership, not, not just to produce teachers, but also to improve the quality of education in, in, in those public school systems for, for everyone. Because that's, we, not only are we, we have the opportunity, we have the location, and, we, and, 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 and I think there is a lot of desire. That means what's happening in the publish that we have here, it would begin with, with seeing that access to great teachers. And you know, all, all of us are here because not that, not that all of our teachers were great, but we've all had one, two, or three great teachers, and we, and, and you and if you just sit back in your mind, you'll remember who that was, um, and you'll still remember something that he or she said. Um, those teachers actually are are, are are miraculous, and you think about great buildings, uh, beautiful buildings. Yes, but all that, but fundamentally, even in a bad building, a great teacher can do more. <laughs> just the way it is, and but it's not just teachers. We have other partnerships that, are, if I speak about my, our external mission, the schools are, are, are important. What we do in our summer programs uh, to for, for young students, uh, we do in science, in data science, even in creative writing. Those summer programs are an important way of helping students understand the pathway to college. And the majority, of, I think, I can't say them, but at least half of the students are not, are not, do not go to Xavier. They go to other colleges, which is also, that's, that is our mission. <laughs> They're going to college. That's important. And on the diversity part, you think about that diversity that we have is that is diversity uh, in, in, in many aspects. Xavier was probably the first college in this country, first Catholic college in this country where men and women actually sat in classes together. For a good 30 years, we were the only one. So, but that that was that, that that's one beginning, but also on the other side is that we have at Xavier many of the descendants of the Vietnamese boat people who came and settled in the Southeast. 
comes to Xavier. Uh, and what happens is that uh, I'm speaking of something that that's another part. When I spoke of uh, that we are repositories of, of the legacy and wisdom of the descendants of slaves in, in, in the Americas, which is something that actually contributes to making America and, and pushes America to become the nation that it needs to be and, and contributes a lot to America. Not just our histories and our stories, but the way of thinking, the way of doing community is important. And other students who come to, who come to, uh, to HBCUs, right, they learn from us. And I use the example of another another school that, that, that I consider that has a parallel history. There's a school in, in uh, a university in Massachusetts called Brandeis University. You may have heard of it. Uh, Brandeis was founded by the Jewish community at the time when Jews, especially Jewish immigrants, could not go into the Ivy League in, other, in the Lawrence School. They were not welcome. So Brandeis was a school that was predominantly Jewish. But what happens if Brandeis over time? Brandeis is probably not predominantly Jewish, but it's still a Jewish institution steeped in, in Jewish culture. And students come there. And I still remember a story once when I was uh, visiting Brandeis. And I confess the reason I was visiting is because I was dating a young woman who was a graduate student at Brandeis at the time, a long time ago. Uh, and I met a young man who was coming to visit, who was coming to a as a graduate student, wearing a Mao jacket. This was the time when people still wore Mao jackets in China. He was coming to Brandeis, and I sat with him, and I was speaking to him, and I asked him, what are you coming to study? He said, I'm coming here for my, to do my doctoral work in English literature. I said, that's interesting. He said, and he said, what do you think you're going to do a dissertation on? And he said, I'm here to write a dissertation on the works of James Baldwin. And, 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 and you see, the reason I, he stays with me is I say that, here you are, predominantly Jewish institution, young man wearing a mouth jacket, writing about James Baldwin. <laughs> that's what <laughs> university is supposed to do. <laughs> he, said, I, he said, I've been reading Baldwin since I was a young man in China. <laughs> I remember the advice I gave him, I hope he took it, I said, you need to write a letter to James Baldwin. Tell him who you are. I'm sure he'd buy you a drink. <laughs> and I know he would. <laughs> you would have. Baldwin's still alive. But I'm saying that that Brandeis still lives and communicates the Jewish culture, the centers of Jewish studies and things like that. Students who come to Brandeis who are not Jewish learn about, uh, about that, that, that heritage. Students who come here who are not African-Americans, who are not descendants of, of slaves, right? learn about a certain experience and a body of experience. They learn, they learn about our music, our culture, our food, all, all the things that are important about that, but also our commitment to justice and why. And sometimes they are the strongest advocates for our mission because they learn here. So in other words, our, our work is, we have, I, I use, a, if I might take a, 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 a more religious bent, we have an evangelical mission in the sense of evangelical spreading a good news to the rest of the nation. And sometimes there's a saying by Francis of Assisi where he told his followers to preach all the time. I just want to be sure no, that's not going to ring. Uh, Francis of Assisi told his followers that they should preach. They should be preaching all the time. And he said, and when necessary, use words. In other words, your example, what you're doing at Xavier is what you want to show the country. And because what we know at Xavier, because of what we do, I think we pose an important question to the nation. We say, how come you're not doing this? You're bigger, you're rich. How come you're not doing this? And I, I would hope that some would, act, would compete with us and actually show us and become our equal. Mm -hmm. That would mean that we've all arrived. <laughs> no, I, I, really, I really like that message there. And it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, kind of, you know, from your lens at, at down at Xavier, you know, what you all are, are focused on, what you're trying to do, but also the diversity of just the student body and the thinking and just, you know, it, it's interesting to hear how, 
you are, like you were saying at the end, you're, you're educating folks who come to the school and letting them know the, the African-American experience and, and what we've gone through. And then they go off and they take that with them. Um, like you said, and sometimes they become our, our biggest advocates right there next to us trying to push for you know, justice. And that's, that's really interesting to hear in the time that we're in in this country where we're having these conversations about race. Um, and it seems that folks, at least right now, are more interested in trying to understand the African-American experience. And so you can go and you can go to an HBCU um, as a person who's not black and, and get and at least have a better understanding of our history and what we've contributed. And you would be welcome um, and you would learn. And you'd be welcome and you would learn. Exactly. Exactly. And it, exactly. it goes back to the fact that most people recognize that HBCUs were established to, to educate, you know, the black communities, but all HBCUs had the intent at establishment for all races. It wasn't that you had to be black to come to us. Never bought into Jim Crow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that that that's what that's the message right there that we're gonna leave with our break here and take uh, to our final message. Remember, viewers, we're gonna always end with our final message here as a way to send this episode and a great big old bow. So stick with us. We're gonna take our last little break with Dr. Barrett here, and we'll be right back. have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. viewers uh this has been a great conversation this hbcu awareness series is it's been awesome we've been you know dev and i are very thrilled to put it together for you uh today remember we've been joined by dr Reynolds barrett the sixth president of Xavier university in louisiana uh dr barrett we always like to do a final message for our viewers and our listeners just to make sure we can send the episode off to them and to set the stage for your final message um, one of the things that we know is that, you know, HBCUs have done so much for the Black community, American society, and abroad. Uh, whether y'all have been on the front lines or behind the scenes, since your inception, each institution has worked diligently to advance ideas of justice, equality, opportunity, even duty. We know that Xavier University of Louisiana has been part of this. I mean, going back to the mission, which we've talked about, that mission about building a more just and humane society led by students who then go on to become proactive citizens with an emphasis on leadership and service in a global society. That, that's the kind of mission that we really need in every neighborhood. So Dr. Verab, with, with a way to inspire the Black community and all those who are watching and listening, leave us with the message that shows why that mission of Xavier should be instilled within the entire Black community so that we can begin to empower our own neighborhoods and rebuild ourselves toward generational wealth and prosperity. Well, for, let me just say, begin by saying that this America, this United States was built and grew by the ingenuity of many people, some of them who came from abroad. And, like, and in there, the ingenuity of black people was a key to building America, even when we were still slaves. People forget that the first immunization, the first vaccination in this country was because of a slave, Onesimus was actually a slave to Calvin Mathis, who showed them how to vaccinate against smallpox. We think of the Jenner vaccine, which was, Jenner vaccine was actually an improvisation on what Onesimus showed them in Boston. 
We've been there before. Many of the engines that, that of our industrial revolution, they were slaves who divided them. And the metal workers who came from West Africa, the ingenuity came with them as well. You can see it in many of our buildings and many of our, our, our sculptures around the and then I go back to that period. But likewise, that notion of service and building the community in America has always been there with us. And I want to actually bring something else that I think I, I would like, I think everyone needs to understand that to invest in our institutions is not just investing for the better betterment of just black people. It is necessary for the nation. The same way these people go, these young people go off to build the nation, the community. Understand that in our institution is talent. Some 20, some 20 years, almost 20 years ago, in, in 2000, a report came out from ETS looking at just workforce in STEM, whether it was chemistry, biology, physics, computer science, those fields, engineering. And the shortage of that of work of, of manpower that would be available 10 years, they were looking 10 years ahead. And in that report by ETS called Meeting the Needs, one of the things they say is that the United States would not be able to meet its workforce in, in these important STEM fields unless it educated its black and brown children because the United States was becoming a majority minority. So if we, in other words, it's almost like going into, into combat into the Olympic Games, right? With only a fraction of your population or with one hand tied behind your back and maybe one leg tied behind your back as well. Not, not a happy situation. So what I'm saying is that the fact that we educate these scientists, these, these, these engineers, creative people who drive our creative industry, like Chadwick Boseman, uh, and that's a major engine of prosperity for this nation. Uh, writers, uh, writers, lawyers, people who get, contribute to all the part of the country, many of these people are black and brown. And our schools educate them. And they actually make this country possible. Understanding, for example, that if the United States, this is, this, this is not, I'm not exaggerating, I'm saying if the United States hopes to remain a world power, a military, economic, all the perspectives that would want to be a power in, in the world, right? You have to educate your talent. And that talent is in, the, is in the second, third, or fourth grade right now. That's your gold. If you want to bury that gold, you can bury that gold. Or you can educate that gold that flower. Other countries, there was a time when we actually, we could count on immigrants from countries like China or India coming to study, even out of best graduate schools, and remaining here. Now, those countries are developing. They want to repatriate their brains. You cannot blame them. So if you don't educate your own, you want to be a backwater, that's what will happen. And, and, and we all, we've been, we've been in the second grade class before. If you've if you never been in the you should walk into a second grade class between before recess or after recess, and you'll see these freaky, bright boys and girls. That's what America is going to depend upon. The greatest, the best uh, pediatric neurosurgeon of his generation, right, ben, was Carson, when Carson was a surgeon. You know how many other people like Ben Carson we chose not to educate? The young woman at, at, at the NIH was involved in, 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 in seeding the first mRNA vaccines. The others like that. Uh, the museum right here at the World War II Museum has done exhibitions on, uh, on Charles Drew. Has anyone audited how many lives of American soldiers were saved in World War II because of this technology of freezing blood plasmids and being able to shipped abroad? And, 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 the, and the thing I'm thinking that there are many books, inventions, we, never have, we don't have the picture of who did it, right? But black folks were there. And, and what we know is that in this moment in time, if we want to be able to compete and educate our own and, and, and compete with our own, you're not to educate some people who look like you and me and educate them very well. HBCUs are doing that. And therefore, in that respect, we're not just doing something for some people, we're doing it for the country. And so when you are investing in our HBCUs, you are also, you're investing in the black community, you're also investing in the nation. 
And that's the future that we want to happen for this country. Remember, as Alma Lewis, who was the theater promoter and things like that, in Massachusetts once said, she was saying, she would often refer to as American as an ongoing project, an unfinished project. This project of justice is unfinished. We stumble and fall. <laughs> but this is where, we, this is where we're going. And, and, and as Mark would say, the arc of justice is bending. The arc is bending towards justice. We'll get there, but it's not, and we'll get there by counting every one of those bright boys and girls in the second grade. And they will all, we'll see them as our children, their children, or their children. That's a very, that's a very, very powerful message there. That was incredible. I was hanging on, you know, to every word. And I appreciate you just kind of, you know, laying it out there and and getting people to understand the the contributions, you know, of African-Americans and why it's so important to 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 invest not only in HBCUs, but in, in black communities, because there is incredibly talented, smart folks out there who are just not being, you know, educated and, and groomed to really contribute to the country. And so it's like we're doing it's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we, you know, defund, you know, black schools and, and defund HBCUs. It's like flushing money away. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, you're flushing genius away. Yeah. You're flushing genius away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that one doing? thing, that one quote you said. I mean, when you invest in HBCU, you're investing in America. In I mean, that I, 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 you know, we need to put that on a, a t-shirt or a hat or something and start <laughs> selling that because that that is powerful. I mean, that is that is truly what it's about. When you're investing in, you know, Xavier's and Hamptons and Howard. You're building a better America because, as you said, America is being built by black and brown folks. And a lot of black and brown folks are going to these institutions. And a lot of these uh, black and brown folks at these institutions are going on to become vice president of the United States and things. So we've got to make sure that all institutions like our HBCUs are top tier. They're given the accreditation. They're given the resources that they need because, like you said, they're going to be producing top talent that the world needs, not just the black community, but the world as a whole needs. So, yeah, that was like I said, we got, we need to put that on a shirt, Devin, and, and start marking that. Investing in HBCUs is investing in America because that's what it's all about. And that I mean, that's a, that's almost like a thing for this HBCU series, Doctor Baird. You didn't know about it, but you kind of gave us a new little thing there because that. That's a very uh, powerful sentence uh, when, when you sum it all up like that. Uh, Devin, I don't know. Uh, any last thoughts for you? No, I mean, I, again, I, I appreciate everything you, you said, Dr. Verrett, and you've been spot on from the very, very beginning in, in, in diagnosing, you know, the issues, but also trying to give people um, a look forward and why we need to take care of our HBCUs and why people, you know, need to not tell all the bad stories about HBCUs, but be willing to tell the good stories of the amazing research and physicians and doctors and lawyers that you all um, are producing. And they're going on to do incredible things for the country because that's the story that really needs to be told. And we know, we hear it all the time, the story of HBCUs is just not being told enough. And so we appreciate you coming on our show to be able to tell Xavier um, Xavier's story of what you all are doing down there, what you're focused on, I mean, how you're looking ahead to the next decade. So I just appreciate you coming on and giving us, you know, your your perspective from 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 Xavier. And I thank you because you're telling you're telling our story and getting our story to people who never heard it. And this is important work that you're doing. Country needs to hear from you. Thank you. No, thank you. That's that's what we're trying to you know put this together for. Put it out so that people will know. And viewers, remember, we've been joined today by Dr. Reynolds Barrett, who's a sixth president of Xavier University in Louisiana. Great institution. 
only Catholic HBCU in our nation. Uh, be sure to check them out because they are really preparing students for global excellence. And if you want to be a part of that, you need to have them on your radar. So uh, make sure that you check them out. Stick with us, viewers and listeners. We're going to take one more break. And as always, Devin and I are going to come back and wrap up our episode. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So as always, we like to end the podcast with the look forward to what is upcoming for, for the rest of this series and for the podcast. And so for the month of March, we've been recognizing HBCUs because it is HBCU Awareness Month. And, and that's why we did come up with the idea to do an awareness series. And so each week we've been releasing a conversation uh, with the leader at an HBCU on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you haven't already, if this is your first time watching this series after listening to Dr. Verrett, uh, we do we do you know urge you to go back and listen um, to some of our conversations with leaders at FAMU, Howard, Grambling, uh, Tuskegee, Fisk, uh, Claflin, and Hampton University. An impressive, impressive lineup um, that we have. And so Upcoming, though, our series is coming to an end, unfortunately. We've thoroughly enjoyed uh, bringing you these conversations, but our very last episode will feature um, Dr. Thomas Hudson uh, from, from uh, Jackson State University. And, and so we're going to dig into them and kind of see what they're doing up at Jackson State. Um, so tune in. That'll be next week, March 30th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Um, you can watch that on Facebook and YouTube, um, just like you watched us, uh, Dr. Verrett. And so um, as always, too, we will be back with you on Saturday, March 27th, uh, to bring you our weekly roundup. And that's where we bring you the news um, at 7.30 p.m. Central Time on Facebook and YouTube. And that's why we kind of bring you the news in a different way. We try to do it unbiased, but also funny, engaging, and it's the breaking news of the week but also some news you may not have heard about. So um, look, if, look for that coming out on Saturday. And also, too, uh, we do appreciate your support listening, but we also ask uh, for your support monetarily. Um, and so we do have a way for you to give to us, whether it's a few dollars or a hundred dollars. And so, uh, Adrian, you can kind of explain to the viewers there how they can get back to us. Yeah, I was, I was laughing at it because it reminds me of being in church or how, you know, we used to say in the, from the pulpit, it's nice to show up, but. <laughs> we, you know, when it's offering time, we need you to give. So right. it's just awesome that you're showing up to watch us and listen to us, but it's offering time. So it'd be great to be able to get some of those donations. Um, and, and what I always tell people, you know, the easy part is going to our website, you know, blackagendapod.com and clicking the donate button. That's the easy stuff. But the, the good stuff is why you should donate. I mean, you know, the Black Agenda podcast, our mission is really about engaging with leaders to talk about issues within minority communities, but really about how they slow down societal progress. And from doing that, we want to really create an organization, create a mission, a message that can really go to better society. And that does take money because, you know, in America, you can have great ideas, but you do have to have dollars behind those ideas to get them off the ground. We always tell people, start with a dollar a month. It's an easy contribution. Like I said, go to our website, start there, start small, grow from there, and you're really going to help to expand our mission. The other thing that you will help us with is our charity of the month. Uh, remember, we're honoring the Third Good Marshall College Fund, 
it would be awesome if you donate and we could give a donation in honor of the Black Agenda podcast and our fans to recognize the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, which is an institution that's really trying to put a lot of students in HBCUs. I mean, their mission is to ensure student success by promoting educational excellence and preparing the next generation of workforce talent through leadership development. So a really great mission, just like the Black Agenda podcast. So you donate to them, you donate to us, just like HBCUs, um, we can make the world a better place. Absolutely. You almost sound like Dr. Ferret for a little bit. <laughs> so, but again, we, we appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, we had an amazing interview uh, with Dr. Uh, Reynolds Verrett from Xavier University of Louisiana and a great interview there. If you can't, you know, go back and listen to it tonight, go back and listen to it tomorrow, share it with everybody. Um, the last thing we like to tell everybody is, is to find us on social media. And that would be Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod, and that's at Black Agenda Pod. So you can just put that in there. Go follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like, share, everything. We're trying to get our, you know, we're trying to get our engagement up. We want this to get in front of as many people um, as possible, not only to support us, but to support Xavier University of Louisiana. We're trying to give them some exposure too. So um, double, you know, double support there. So again, we appreciate you. We wanted, to, we definitely want to thank Xavier University of Louisiana for making Dr. Verrett available to us. Uh, we th- enjoyed the conversation with him, and left, he left us with some good nuggets, definitely. And hey, Devin, before you, before we end, I just wanted to you know, mention those nuggets. I just wanted to make sure we go back to that that quote he said was, you know, when you're investing in HBCUs, you're investing in America. I just wanted to make sure we get that out, you know, one last <laughs> time because now that's a powerful statement that. You'll probably see uh, us putting on a T-shirt whenever we do this series in 2022. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But that was a powerful statement that I wanted to make sure we end with. You know, when you're investing in HBCUs, you're investing in America. Very, very true. That's a great, great quote. So don't be surprised if you see that on a T-shirt come 2022 or 2021. We'll see. <laughs> so, but again, we thank you for staying with us. We thank you for watching and we'll catch you next time.